just wanted to say I was just thinking when we haven't sung that song in a little while, but how firm a foundation. Amen. He's done everything for us. He died for us, but he gave us his word. It's so important, right? And there's a reason for every word in it. And this is the accurate, truthful history of his church. Beginning in Acts 23, verse 1. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was a high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes or the Pharisees' part arose, and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to make him by force, and to take him by force from among them, and to bring him into the castle. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast tested me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Let us pray. Father, and we just thank you for your great salvation. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word. And Father, we now pray that you give us all ears to hear what you would have us to learn from this, Lord, and we be glorified through it all. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Well, good to have us all uh, gathered together again this morning. And um, I don't know if you've all have heard, but uh, the Fix family did grow by one over the weekend. And uh, so praise the Lord for his great design, his great creation. Think of that, brethren. As the Bible says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And uh, little Lenora Hope uh, showed up over the weekend. And so we're so grateful, so thankful to have another Another grandchild. It's uh, an amazing thing as uh, you grow older, amen, and uh, your hair turns a little gray. You still have kids, amen, that are a little young yet. They're the same age as some grandkids, and so it certainly has been an interesting, interesting journey for sure. And uh, this morning as we begin together, it is indeed by the good providence of God. And brethren, we never say that likely, by the good providence of God that he has arrived. We have arrived safely, brethren, if you will, to chapter 23 in the book of Acts. Now, as we have seen, this inspired narrative contains the events, the people, and the history regarding the rapid growth of the gospel of Christ. It has been a stunning thing to behold. And by the raising up by God's strong arm, amen, he has indeed put in place his holy edifice. And that would be the local churches that he has sprinkled all across the Roman Empire. It's a stunning thing. And I was thinking about that when I was thinking about the Roman Empire. It's an amazing thing. Do you realize how huge the Roman Empire really was? Let me just give you a little bit. And I was looking at this thinking, by the second century, think of this. Now, Paul here is arrested, which we're going to see and has been arrested. And it's interesting, isn't it, that through Paul's arrest, through his captivity, God sets free all of those elect who are scattered, who are still scattered, his people who are scattered throughout this Roman Empire. Consider this for a moment, brethren. 
This Roman Empire by the second century encompassed nearly the entire European continent and substantial portions of the Middle East and Africa with tentacles that were stretching from Egypt to England. Listen, brethren, from Spain to Iraq and southern Russia to Morocco. Now, this thing is expanding. It's an expansive thing as we see this. Let me just give you a couple of modern-day countries that uh, the gospel here is Paul as he is standing to make his second defense. It was touching Wales and France and Spain and Portugal, Belgium. Think of this, brethren, for just a moment. Switzerland, Australia, Italy, Hungary. Think of the gospel as it's spreading out across this vast empire. It's a stunning thing. Romania, Turkey, Greece, Albania, Yugoslavia, Israel, Lebanon. On and on it goes, brethren. That's an amazing thing. Tunisia and parts of Germany. And it is, as I said, in this expansive pagan, if you will, uh, area, if you will. It's an amazing thing. This pagan empire is expanding where God has sprinkled his lost sheep who will without fail. And again, this is what we must always consider as we see what God is doing with the gospel. Who will without fail be drawn by him and regenerated by the Holy Ghost, thereby empowering those who are sprinkled up throughout this, this pagan empire, allowing them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who becomes for them. And even to this very hour, one who believes becomes for them their particular redeemer and definite propitiation for their sins. Think about that for a moment, brethren. The intricacies of God as he's working this thing out, as the gospel is going forth, he's drawing men, he's regenerating men by the Spirit of God, and he's indeed allowing their eyes to be opened that they might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is indeed their particular and definite Redeemer. Now, so this morning, as we wade together into chapter 23, again, we are reminded that the Apostle Paul has been taken into custody. He is indeed a prisoner and will remain a prisoner, as we've said before, until his death. It's an amazing thing. This, as I was thinking this through, the beginning of Paul's life as a prisoner is used by God to set free in real earthly time all who are afar off. Think of that, brethren, for just a moment. What Peter said earlier in Acts chapter 2, it was for their children and for that generation and for all who are afar off, whoever will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What happens to Paul here is a stunning thing as the gospel is indeed pushed all the way across this expansive, this expansive Roman Empire. It's a stunning thing. And brethren, this morning, if you're saved, we are feeling it. We have been part of it this morning, brethren. Think of this. This is the amazing thing to me that sometimes we read things, as I always say, and we think about things and we don't realize the ramifications of what God is doing here concerning the Apostle Paul and what he's doing. It really is an amazing thing. We see there in Acts chapter 23, verse number 1. Let us read that together, brethren. Look at what the Bible says here. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. What an amazing statement. As Paul begins the second phase of his trial, as he is standing before the council, ready again to make another defense, another apologia of how he has been changed, what Christ did to him, as a Pharisee, and God changed him, made him a new man, a Christian, if you will, a Jewish Christian man. He's standing ready to make another defense. And he, again, earnestly addresses them. As we have seen time and time again, he calls them brethren. Constantly we see that. Again, Paul, as he's addressing them in such a way, if you will, he says, men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. In other words, Paul is saying to them, I have been faithful to Yahweh. I have been faithful to his words constantly, continually. When I was an astute Gal Gamaliel, if you will, tutored and trained zealous Jewish man, I was indeed standing before God in good conscience. So too now as I stand before you all again for the second time, so too now am I standing here according to God's word, according to what Yahweh has said, I'm standing before you in all good conscience. What a great thing for a man to say. What an amazing thing, especially he draws God as his what? God is his witness. 
I'm standing not only before you, but I'm standing before God himself. And I stand today and tell you that I have a good and a clean and a pure conscience. Now, it's interesting, biblically, when you look at that word, conscience, it is indeed biblically defined this way. The God-given faculty or capacity within us that decides on the lawfulness or the unlawfulness of our own actions and affections. Think of that for a moment, brother. It's a stunning thing when you look at the conscience, when you understand biblically what it is. It's an amazing thing. Which instantly approves or condemns one's affections or actions. It's a stunning thing, a God-given capacity. I want you to see this, again, kind of lived out in the Bible as the word conscience is brought up in Scripture. There's so many things that come to our minds concerning. And Paul again stands there and says, as God is my witness, before God and before you, my conscience is pure. My conscience is holy. And it is even up until this very day, even as an astute Jew, even now as a new creature, a new man in Christ, my conscience is clear because I am indeed following the words of Yahweh. Look at this word in action. I want you to see this. Look at, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8 for just a moment. And we're going to really kind of define this because it's important. This is one of the central themes of our text. My conscience is clear. I'm, I'm pure before God. I'm pure before all of you. And uh, I'm going to die because of that. Amen. Eventually. But here he stands. Look at John chapter 8. Look there, if you would, at these words. Again, just a couple of uh, portions of scripture for us to really understand the definition of this. John chapter 8. Look at verse number 3. The Bible says, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Well, what's the first problem, brethren? I don't know if you understand the law. I don't know if you understand what they're trying to do here. But if you go look at the law, which we will not, in Leviticus chapter 20, it demands that not only the woman be brought, who else is to be brought? The man is to be brought. The man is suspiciously missing. So he says they're trying to, again, trap the Lord. He who wrote Leviticus uh, chapter 20, he's trying to trap the Lord. But look at what it says here. Uh, they say unto a master, this woman has ta was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that shut should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that he might have uh, to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down. Now, Brethren, there's many, much speculation about what Jesus is writing here. I hold to probably both things. Look what it says. He stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued to ask him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Verse 8, and again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now many historians believe that Jesus, of course, being uh, God uh, himself in the flesh, amen, the Son, believed that he was indeed writing down either Leviticus 20 or being omniscient God, he was writing out some of their own sins, some of the things that they were guilty of. Again, the law demanded that the woman or the man come too. So he's stooping down, writing on the with his finger. And I want you to see their response. As soon as he does this, there's something convicting that he wrote, something that comes into the heart of these, of these men standing there, being the hypocrites that they are. Look what it says there, verse 9. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own what? By their own conscience. Do you see that there? Being convicted by their own conscience. And look at the order in which they leave. That order is important, brethren, again. Look at the order in which they leave. Went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. It's an amazing thing. Their own conscience. They come, they're trying to trap the Lord Jesus Christ. And even with their defective conscience, they understand and realize something's not right. That inner man told them, as Jesus was writing the law on the ground, which I believe he was probably doing, writing that law on the ground to them, there was a conviction that comes into the heart because if you, again, look and understand what the conscience is, look what Paul wrote about. In fact, Paul wrote more about the conscience than any other writer in the New Testament. It's a stunning thing. Over and over and over again, he wrote about the conscience. Paul says, I have a clear conscience. Look at Romans chapter 2. Look here. Look at this again. is, is uh, again, a biblical definition of the conscience. What is it? What does it do? It's a stunning 
amazing thing, this capacity that God has put in humans to make a self-adjustment, a self, if you will, examination concerning who we are, even as lost people. <laughs> Brethren, think of it for a moment. Think of this. You can have a cannibal who's never heard of the law of God, never heard of the Ten Commandments, who can be in a community, and, and I said cannibal, right? A cannibal does what? They eat people. But they can have a standard within that. They may be very, if you want to have much fidelity toward their wives. Do you understand that? So you can be way off on this, but you can, by conscience, hold a standard and say, well, we shouldn't be cheating on our wives. And so you see that. In fact, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. Again, the conscience, that which he is speaking of. Look again, Romans chapter 2. Look at verse number 14 there, if you would. Again, Paul writes about it a lot. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. And again, brethren, this is what I'm talking about, that inner conscience. Verse 15 which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness to their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. Do you see that there, brethren? A lost Gentile, not having the law of God, has built within him an innate conscience, even amongst criminals, even in the prison system. Can I just use that as an example this morning? Think about this, brethren, for just a moment. You realize that if you are a pedophile even amongst the murderers in prison they have a place where they put the pedophiles you know why because according to their conscience those pedophiles deserve to die even though they're murderers so you see this again this conscience this standard that's within there are certain things that just can't cross over now again brethren the issue is whether or not your conscience is seared whether or not you are, if you will, using your conscience according to a worldly system or according to a biblical world view. That's really the difference. This is what Paul says in Romans 9. Turn there if you would again. This conscience that one, is, that has, one has within them is indeed infected by their sinful nature. <laughs> There's no question about that. But look what Paul says here in Romans chapter 9 again about the conscience. The Bible says, I say the truth in Christ, verse 1. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Now, brethren, that's the difference between a Christian conscience and one where there is a Gentile or just a pagan, amen, who would have, hey, we've got this standard here, we can eat people, but by golly, we are not going to commit adultery on our wives because their conscience will not allow it. So again, we see here this definition of conscience. Paul is standing before them, he's saying, before Yahweh himself, my conscience is pure even unto this day. Why? Because I've been a follower of Yahweh. I've been obedient to his words. I've listened to what his word says. And yes, I have been faithful to all of it. So Paul is standing there again, if you will. So again, let me just kind of, if I can, tie this together. The conscience is indeed a God-given capacity for human beings to self-examine themselves. There's absolutely no question about it. Our conscience is an internal witness to the presence of the law of God that's written on our hearts. No question. The Bible teaches that. It is a servant to one's value system. Your conscience is a servant to the value system that you hold on to. Again, well, there's so many examples. You either have a secular world system or you have a biblical worldview and system. And your conscience is geared by the Holy Spirit towards those things. And really Paul here is saying that the aim of the Christian, the aim for you and I concerning our conscience, concerning that inner man. Interesting, isn't it? We all have, we all have three places that we live, don't we? Oh yeah, well, unless I'm different than all of you. We have our public life that we live in. We have our private life at home that we live in. Amen? You know what else we live? You know where else we live? We all have a secret life that we live in. There's three places that we live. And it's in that secret place where the Holy Spirit of God must indeed give us conviction, give us much, if you will, drawing and much power to overcome that secret life. Because, brethren... I'm telling you, it's a stunning thing what men will do if they think no one's ever going to find out. 
Think of it for a moment. It's stunning. But it is the conscience. It is the Holy Spirit. It's that regenerated conscience that God has regenerated that Paul stands before them all and says before Yahweh, my conscience is clear. I've been faithful. I've been right. I've been true to the one true God. Amen. And isn't that something, brethren, that as Christians, that should be our goal. Our goal should be, we should be able to stand as Paul did, before, whether it's religiosity, whether whatever it might be before the world, and say to them, I have a clear conscience before you and before Yahweh himself, because I am an obedient Christian. I am one who follows the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look here, if you would, back at Acts. Paul stands before them and says, hey, I've got this conscience up to this day. It is clear. It is pure. It is, and again, not that Paul was sinless, but he was indeed right with the Lord. He was indeed right all along the way. Look at verses 2 and 3. This is interesting. Really, the, sometimes you read Scripture and you can't believe the irony of things. <laughs> it's quite a stunning thing. Look at here the reaction as Paul stands before them, these religious people, as he stands before them and says, my conscience is clear before God. Verse 2. And the high priest Ananias commanded that uh, stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then Paul said unto him, God will smite thee, thou white-whited white, white, wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me now to be smitten contrary to the law? Now, brethren, again, the irony here as we read that portion of Scripture, particularly verse 2, after Paul is commanded by Ananias, now, brethren, we don't understand this, he was punched in the mouth. Paul is standing there, that word smite, he was literally, you ever been punched in the mouth? I have. You ever been sucker punched? Yes. He is punched right in the mouth by, after the command of this Ananias. It's a stunning thing. And he is standing there, unbelievably shocked. But what does Paul do? He instantly rebukes him. He instantly rebukes this Ananias and he says, you whited wall. Paul calls him what he really is, what this Ananias in the Bible really is, a whited wall. Amazing, isn't it? Now, that term whited wall was a metaphor for hypocrite. It indeed, if you will, depicted one as having a clean exterior, but on the inside, brethren, full of dead men's bones, full of all dead spiritual things, full of content that is vile to the hilt. Here we have Ananias, who is supposed to be a keeper of the law, supposed to be one who's overseeing the law. Instead, he commands that Paul be punched. It's an amazing thing. Ananias is indeed trampling all over Paul in both the spirit and letter of the law. Now, it's interesting when you go, we don't have time. I'll give you the verse, Deuteronomy 25, 1 and 2. It absolutely declares. Deuteronomy, the book of the law, declares that a Jewish man, a, if you will, especially one of Paul's credentials, must never be punched, must never be scourged, must never ever be touched until he has been found guilty of a crime, either against God or against the Torah or against whatever it is. That was a no-no. Like we saw last week, the Romans, you did not do that. You did not do that even to a Roman citizen, let alone now someone who's supposed to be a keeper, if you will, of the law. But it's no wonder, brethren, again, that word whited wall again depicts a hypocrite, one who looks clean on the outside and is inside full of dead men's bones. We remember someone else making a statement very close to that, don't we? It was our Lord Jesus Christ himself speaking again of those religious people. I can't say it. I say it every week. I can't say it enough, brethren. Listen. Religiosity will kill you. Religiosity will take you places that are so unholy. It is a stunning thing. An unbiblical religion, let me say that, because James speaks, doesn't he, of biblical religion, that there is biblical religion. I'm talking about this kind of religion. Look there, if you would, Matthew chapter 23. Listen to the words of our Lord saying basically the same thing. And again, this is what's so amazing about this. Look at Matthew 23. Look at verse number 25. Again, listen. The Lord here is, of course, laying it out, shall we say. He's using some terminology, kind of like we heard this morning in Bible study. 
the way men used to talk. <laughs> you know, he's addressing the issue. And again, the Bible warns us, doesn't it? Hey, answer it according to the depth of the theology of it. There are some things, brother, that you just, you don't get rabid and pull the fangs out and start fighting with everybody. There are some things that you do. Jesus here says unto these religious hypocrites, look there if you would, Matthew 23, look at verse number 25. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye make clean the outside of the cup and, on the, uh, 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 and of the planter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisees, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Verse 28, even so ye, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. This is precisely what, what Paul is saying to Ananias. A man, again, who is supposed to be following the law, although it's interesting in that response. It's really, really interesting when you consider that, what, ha what took place. Now, not only was this Ananias, not to be confused with the other Ananias, there's a couple of them in the Bible. This is the Ananias that we're obviously talking about here in the book of Acts. Not only was he a whited wall in relationship to the Jewish law, but he was also a whited wall as it is related to his everyday life. It is who he was. Again, brethren, this veneer, if you will, of holiness, this veneer of purity just came out from his inward sides. It's a stunning thing. In fact, Josephus wrote this about this Ananias. Listen, he was well known for his greed. He was accused of embezzling the tithes of the ordinary priests uh, and handing out lavish bribes. This guy not only was a whited wall concerning the law, he was a whited wall with his whole life. He was a hypocrite. He looked a veneer of purity on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. Josephus also said that Ananias was hated by the Jewish nationalists because of his pro-Roman policies, and he was. And they burned his home down. It's an amazing thing, brother. They burned his home at the beginning of the Jewish-Roman War. They hunted him and his brother down, and killed both of them. He was indeed a whited wall. Paul was not a prophet here, but he sure prophesied some truth. That this man who is passing judgment on me, as I said, I had a great and a good clear conscience before God. He's nothing more than a whited wall, an actor on a stage. It's quite amazing when you uh, figure that out. Paul, again, brought out this white veneer of purity that covered over Ananias' corrupt, corruption and hypocrisy. Now look again, all of this action, look there back at Acts chapter 23 again, and look what happens. Look what takes place. And again, brethren, as one pastor said, this is a, a sign of a mature Christian. This is something I, I could, you know, again, I don't like to bring myself into it, but this played out in my own home last week when I realized what I had said and what I had done in reaction to something I heard. And Isaac, there he is right there. Isaac was there. And when I realized who it was I said it about and what I said, did I, did I not look at you and go, brother, I shouldn't, I got to repent. I should not have said that because I did. It was a knee jerk. It was a reaction just like that to something I found out unholy thing. And what Paul does here in his reaction is indeed the picture of a mature Christian who realizes immediately that what he says or what he does draws immediate repentance for what he has just said and what he has just done. And again, this is reality, brethren. This is something, these lessons that we learn are so vital to us. A mature Christian. Look at this reaction here in Acts chapter 23. So applicable, so needful for us today as Christians. Look there at verses 4 and 5. And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Look at verse 5. Then Paul said, I wist not, brethren, there's that word again over and over again, he calls them brethren. 
that he was the high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. The minute Paul finds out, and it's interesting in their response. <laughs> in fact, Paul, quite frankly, is stunned here, actually. Paul's been gone, remember, for 20 years. He's been out of the Jewish loop for almost 20 years. And Paul is actually stunned that a man like Ananias is the high priest of Israel. A glutton, a thief, a, a lover of Roman tendencies, Paul is absolutely stunned that a man like that could be brought in as the high priest of Israel. He is stunned. Even though he's stunned, when he realizes that Ananias is indeed the high priest, where does he go? What does he do immediately, brethren? Howard's mouthing it over here. He goes right to that which never changes. Right to that which is in his heart and in his mind. It is written that we shall not speak evil of the leader of Israel, brethren. And that word immediately draws what? Repentance out of him. Immediately, I, oh, oops, I overstepped my bounds. And again, brethren, that's a great picture of a mature Christian. One who, as I use myself as an example, who just had an outburst, kind of. And said some things. And when I realized who it was. Mm, it brought repentance immediately. Whoa wait a minute. I should not have said that. I should not have reacted that way. Brethren this is Paul. Beautiful picture of a mature Christian man. Who realizes that the authority of God's word. Is much higher than him. And brethren think of this. He realized instantly. That the holiness of God is greater than the wickedness of Ananias. Think of that for a moment. Put that, put that in our pipe for just a little bit. When he realized the holiness of God is greater than the wickedness of Ananias to any degree, he instantly repented. He instantly said, whoops, I should not have done that. In fact, uh, Paul quotes Exodus 22, verse 28. I'll give you the verse where it says, you shall not revile God, nor curse the ruler of your people. Again, instantly in Paul's mind, that scripture comes. And instantly that scripture then produces in him a repentance. I like what John MacArthur said. Paul's reaction was that of a mature Christian, as I said. He saw his sin in relation to how holy God is, not how bad the high priest was. And brethren, that's a great thing for us to remember. As we're praying, think of this, brothers. Can I ask you, who put Joe Biden in office? Who, who put him there? Sovereign God put him there. And one of the hardest things for us to do, brethren, is to pray for such an immoral, unholy, wicked man. And yet, have we not been commanded in Scripture to pray for kings and for leaders, and for those who are in a place of authority? Oh, yeah. Do you see how hard this really is? See, it's easy to say. It's easy to speak. It's another thing to have the Spirit of God employ that in our hearts, for me to bend my knee with my children at night and pray about Joe Biden. And we do. We pray for his salvation. And, Lord, if, you're not, if, he, if he's, if he's not going to get saved, may you move him, <laughs> move him out of the way. But we still, brethren, you see how that scripture just comes to your mind? It should, as a, as a mature Christian, we should go, ooh, ooh, I crossed the line, or ooh, I need to pray, I need to be obedient to the scriptures. This is what Paul is doing. This is the, can I use it? I know that the evangelical fishes, fishes like to use funny language. You know, uh, he's an example. He is an example here. This is a biblical pattern in his life. This is something that you see of him over and over and over again. Now, Paul, of course, being led by the Spirit of God, now does this. Look there, if you would, at verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. Look at what he says. He repents. I'm not going to speak evil. However, the Lord, by the Holy Spirit of God, we see in verse 6, 
But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, there it is again, all through this text. I mean, he keeps calling them men and brethren. I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and in, uh, in resurrection of the dead. I am called in question. Verse 7, and when, he, and when he said so, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I chuckled the other night because Brother Dean brought this up. And the multitude was divided. Look at verse 8. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. Can I just say something here, not to interrupt the text? But it's interesting that you see in Scripture, and we're going to look at one, that a Pharisee does indeed become a Christian. You know what's never recorded in Scripture? A Sadducee becoming a Christian. I don't know if there was, there might have been, but it's never recorded in Scripture. You know why? Because of their doctrine. Because of what they believed that was essential to faith. Essential to being saved, brethren. We can't stand up here and say... Well, you know, brothers, you know, coming up here now where many people are going to celebrate resurrection, where we'll celebrate Resurrection Day, which we do every week here, they'll talk about the resurrection, amen? Now, you can't stand up in front of the people and say, well, well, brothers, we know something cool happened. We're just not sure what it was. And that's what people say. Not here, brethren. This is essential. This is foundational. This goes to the heart of the matter. Look at what the Bible says. Why could a Pharisee be saved? And that's recorded in Scripture, but there's no Sadducees ever recorded of being saved because they believed in this one thing that the Sadducees did not. Look there if you would. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And you see there, brethren, it's an amazing thing. Look at verse 9. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil with this man. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how quickly that unity, that glorious harmony that seemed to be going along in this mixed council, all of the sudden over a major theological issue, there is... There's just an uproar. I mean, this is beautiful what Paul did here as he's led by the Spirit of God. That thing, that resurrection, brethren, is so essential. Even the Pharisees believed in it. Even the Pharisees. Now, if one doesn't believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Christ, we're going to see that Paul really narrows it down. But in the general sense, he means way more than just, hey, yeah, you know, can I talk in hipster language? Yeah, this Jesus, you know, he's really a cool dude. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Here, let me take my tie off, get rid of the pulpit. Let's just get down, man. Let's just be cool with all the people. You know what I mean? No. No. Let's speak truth. Let's tell the biblical truth the way it is. Let's have some reverence for God and what he says concerning the resurrection, concerning the actual bodily, physical resurrection of Christ, which saves the sinner. It's a stunning thing, brethren. The importance of this, again, we see this whole thing. And it's interesting there in verse number 9, <laughs> again, and there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, we find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against who? God. <laughs> interesting again, isn't it? This facade of unity that was taking place in this council is split with one word. Amazing. The resurrection that Paul is speaking of. It is an amazing thing. And Paul says, I stand here on trial because of the hope of that. The hope of the resurrection of the dead. And it's stunning when you look at it. Because Luke, again, as he is led by the Spirit of God, records this truth that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. You know, he doesn't record it once, he records it twice. In fact, in his gospel, I want you to see here, in fact, he's much more definite when he gets into the gospel as he's standing there. Look at Luke, if you would, chapter 20. And I want you to see the depth of this. We, we see the arresting depth here, but Luke, as he is led by the Spirit of God here in Luke chapter 20, you really see the consternation, the utter disdain, that this religious sect had concerning 
the resurrection. We were talking this morning in Bible study. Again, so important, brethren, for one to know history, for one to understand our history. Here's Dean reading documents that were, you know, they come back from the 400s, 300s, 400s. Sound doctrine that they were debating. And then you know what he does? He pulls our church statement out and reads from it and says, this is where that comes from. Now, if my math is right, I'm not a good mathematician, brothers, but all you got to do is add 400 to 2023, and we're holding and saying the same thing because the Bible never changes. That's the importance of history. That's the importance of understanding why we believe what we believe when you watch all of the evangelicals, when you watch all of these people compromising in their songs, compromising in their preaching, compromising in what they'll say and won't say. And you wonder why we sound like a, well, these guys are young yet. You wonder why I sound like a curmudgeoning old man. When Paul, over and over again, warned of it. In fact, we were talking this morning in the bath. Howard and I, we have bathroom conversations in the morning. Stunning. Amazing. These conversations and the men who have held to these sound doctrines. We are standing on their shoulders, brethren. We are literally standing on their shoulders. Amen? They fought for what we believe. We too must fight for what we believe concerning the fundamental foundational things of the cross. You know why? Because there is a never-ending onslaught. Can I quote Peter? Can I quote Paul? You realize <laughs> people make, don't think of this much. And then they get into it and they get washed away in the, in the stream of it. You realize that the number one thing that the Bible addresses is indeed false teachers. It is. Over and over again. And Paul said this, Peter said this, hey, even though you already know this, even though you already know this, you, you know it because the Bible says it, and guess what? Even though you already know this, it is safe for you as the pastor, for the elder, to keep reminding you and keep speaking of these things because you will indeed. I know you think you're different, but you're not. You're no different than Israel was. You're no different than any other man or woman or child is. When they move away from fundamental things, you will be swimming in that river. You will. Paul here is saying, you know that resurrection thing? It's essential. It is indispensable to one's faith. It is, in, it is indeed very, 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 if you will, essential to it all. In fact, let me show you this. As we finish there in Luke chapter 20, not only in verse number 27, not only in verse number 27, look at there. I almost never read it. <laughs> look at Luke chapter 20. Look at verse number 27. I want you to see what they really thought of this resurrection thing. Here we go, verse number 27. The Bible says right there, Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection, none. They don't believe in any resurrection. And they asked him, and it goes on talking, and he shows them for what hypocrites they are as they're, you know, well, this brother died, then this brother died. But the reality of it is they are denying the resurrection. And then that wasn't enough as they're talking to the master teacher, the perfect teacher that we all learn from. Look what they do in verse 33. Look what they do there in verse 33. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her. You know what they did? Not only did they deny the resurrection at the beginning of the conversation, they're now mocking it. They deny it, and they mock it. And again, brethren, as I said, in Acts chapter 15, look at there, quick. Look at Acts chapter 15. One of the places that are recorded where a Pharisee becomes a Christian because of his orthodox understanding of the resurrection uh, look there, Acts chapter 15, look at verse number 5, and again, we've been through here, but listen, but there arose a up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying, 
that it is needful to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. And again, we had that discussion. It's one of the only places in Scripture where you see a Pharisee believed. He trusted in Christ. He believed in the resurrection. That was his foundation. And as Paul preached it, brethren, it was just the Spirit of God working on him, moving him. Yes, it's the resurrection of who? And again, brethren, this is the thing. This, again, is Paul's uh, pinpointing thing. And again, we see in Acts 23, flip there again as we move along. Look at Acts chapter 23. That portion, that understanding, that belief concerning the resurrection caused this. Not only was there a dissension, it caused this to happen. Look there, if you would, at verse number 10. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and bring him into the castle. Brothers, you ever been having a theological discussion and it is so terrifying to people that they're ready to get a hold of you and tear you from limb to limb? This is how much they denied the resurrection and how much they fought against it. It's stunning. This violent, the Bible says it became so violent that again, old Lysias had to grab old Paul, bring him in the castle, and protect him. Because because of that one thing that he said, hey, I'm a Pharisee, I'm the son of a Pharisee, and it is because I believe in the resurrection, the hope that I have, that I am on trial. Think of that for a moment. The severing of truth, the the severing of doctrine, the importance of it all is seen again As Paul appeals, as we bring this, Lord willing, to a close in just a moment, I want you to see the importance of it. Let's read 1 Corinthians 15, again, a familiar portion of Scripture. But this is something that Paul never ceased to preach, never brought as the central theme, one of the central themes of who Christ is. Look at verse number 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. And the number of times he uses vain in this text is stunning. Paul says, I preached unto you this. Listen to it. Verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that uh, which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul says at the beginning, if this isn't true, then everything I've preached, everything you believed, we're all, it's all in vain. In fact, he uses that word. Look at verses 13 and 14. Look there if you would. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. You see how it's Christ, that's the focal point. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching what? Vain, and our faith also is vain. There it is again, vain, vain, vain. He's saying if what I'm preaching isn't true, then it's vain. Look at verse 16 and 17. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. Again, the focal point of Christ, that foundation. Look at verse 17. And if Christ be not raised... Your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Verse 19. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Vain. What does it mean? Over and over again. It means empty. It means worthless. It means having no intrinsic value whatsoever. So what I'm preaching to you, the gospel this morning. Can I use an example quickly? I know I've, I've, I've used it before, but this shows the importance of it. We had a concert one time here, remember, elders, as we were squirming in our seats? And we had an altar call <laughs> of all things, one of the things we just don't do. Hey, if somebody's coming to Christ, they'll come. I don't need to, you know, hey, can you turn up the music back there, Brother Keith? Turn on a little bit of this emotional stuff over here, and we'll see if we can get some people to come forward. Because that happened once here. And a little boy comes forward, stand up. I immediately got out and ran up here. And I asked him, why are you here? Well, I want to get saved. I said, oh, uh, can you tell me what the gospel is? You know what I got? Nothing. He didn't know what it was. You can't be saved if you don't know what the gospel is. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, believing in that, that's what saves. That's why, brethren, if you feel like the Spirit of God's moving you, 
You can come and talk, talk to your parents over here, Brother Graham, or your children. Hey, talk to one of the elders. Talk to a mature Christian. We'll see if you understand what it means to trust in Christ. Paul is saying, hey, I'm standing before you all. My conscience is pure because I've been faithful to Yahweh. I have been faithful to preach his gospel, the gospel alone that saves. And believing in that is essential to it all. There is no resurrection without Christ. And that true and indispensable truth Paul is standing on, and it points to Christ alone. That is salvific in nature. Look at verse number 11. I want to leave us all this morning with some good news, just like Paul does, or just like the Lord does here. He preaches all of this along the way. All this stuff is happening to him. And again, this takes place. Look at verse 11. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, I want you guys to get a hold of these four words. Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer, Paul. Listen. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Brethren, we can't stress the, the importance of what the Lord Jesus did here. Paul, after almost being torn limb to limb, the Lord Jesus appears to him and says, be of good cheer. As you've testified in Jerusalem, you almost got killed in Jerusalem. You're going to go to Rome. You almost got killed here. But be of good cheer, Paul. Now that term, be of good cheer, is an arresting phrase that Jesus uses on many occasions, listen, in reference to his lordship. Do you understand what that means? There's even a debate today about repentance and lordship. How ridiculous is it for one to say you can be converted into the image of Christ and walk like the devil? No, brethren. Paul says here, hey, be of good cheer, brethren, and it goes right to the lordship of Christ. I want you to see this. I want you to be cheery this morning after we get finished. Because again, brethren, when you understand the lordship of Christ, when you understand his authority and his sovereignty, those things that come into our lives, and the elders here recently got some bad news. And I'm an up and down guy. I'm up one minute and kind of down the next and kind of, and, and, and Brother Dean just keeps me stable. Doesn't he, How you and I are like, he keeps us stable in so many things. And one of the things as I, was, as I thought this text through, man, it was sad. It was really sad. As a pastor, you see a lot of sad things. You go through a lot of sad, you go through a lot of joyful things, but you go through some sad things. People come in and out of your life. They come and go. That's a sad thing, brother. It really is. But then I have to remember that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is sovereign over this fellowship. And you know what I got to say? Hey, Mike, be of good cheer, for the Lord is Lord of all. Let me show you this. Jesus uses, look in Matthew chapter 9, the Lord Jesus, this arresting statement concerning his lordship, his authority to build a church, to forgive one's sins. What a glorious thing for us to consider. Look at verse number 1, Matthew chapter 9. And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, laying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of palsy, Son, what? Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Brethren, that is the greatest thing a lost sinner could ever hear from the lips of Christ. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And you go on in the conversation, and we're kind of running out of time, but if you go on in the text, look at verse 6. Well, all right, I'm going to pull a Howard, verse 5. <laughs> Not to pick on you, Howard. 
For whether it is easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say arise and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on the earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of palsy, arise, take up thy bed, and go on to thine house. There's nothing better. The Lord Jesus Christ, if he comes to you and says, be of good cheer, your sins be forgiven you. Because he has the authority and the power to do it. Be of good cheer this morning, brethren. Also, brethren, be of good cheer. No matter what circumstance you are in. No matter what life. And again, it's easy. It's sometimes easy for the pastor to stand up and preach on Job. When he's not in the middle of that tornado. I know many of the brethren are in some storms. Can I say again? Be of good cheer. The Lord is Lord of all. Look with me if you would. We'll just close with a text that Paul uses. Acts chapter 27. Look at Acts chapter 27. Jesus uses it again in John 16. I'll give you the verse 29 through 33. Again, it was an arresting statement that he used a lot. It is said to Paul here, Paul then again goes directly to the lordship of God himself. And he says this in Acts chapter 27. Look at verse number 22. We'll close with this. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer. Why? For there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood me this night uh, the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all of them that sail with thee. This is the sovereignty of God. This is the sovereignty of God over life. Who dies and who lives? Be of good cheer, all. Look there, if you would. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer. For I believe who? God. I believe what God says. I believe what God says here. You should too, brethren, this morning, whatever earthly circumstance you may find yourself in this morning, be of good cheer. Because it is God who is sovereign in your circumstance. Even though it's hard to live it out. But again, we see, don't we, brethren, just in real practical use. The lordship of Christ will prevail in all of your earthly circumstances. He is indeed Lord of all. Therefore, turn to him. Be of good cheer. The Lord loves you more than you can imagine if you're one of his this morning. Be of good cheer too, brethren, if you're lost this morning. <laughs> Be of good cheer, just as we've seen as this gospel has spread across this vast Roman Empire, saving all along the way those whom will indeed be drawn by him, who will indeed be regenerated by the Holy Ghost, who will indeed look up and see the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed shed his blood for them. He became and will become to them long after we're gone, if the Lord tarries, all across from sea to shining sea, when one believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, he indeed in real earthly time becomes their particular redeemer, becomes their, if you will, direct atonement, definite atonement for their sins. Amen? Well, let's pray. Father, Again, the depth of your word is beyond amazing to all of us. We're so thankful for the life of Paul. And as we have considered here, as he is indeed taken into custody and made a prisoner, <laughs> what appears again to be in humanly speaking an impossible thing. And it is, humanly speaking. <laughs> I'm thankful this morning that as we look at our human circumstances that you see them in a much different 
light. You see them from heaven, from eternity. And Father, we are grateful that we have been saved by, by the Lord through the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice, through your priesthood, you sending your Son. And that we are certainly secure there and that we should indeed, and I know again there are many brethren struggling with things in their families and in their lives. Father, may you direct us together to again, as Paul experienced over and over again, to be of good cheer, to understand that you indeed are the Lord of all. And you will bring it to pass as you have promised, even as you did to Paul. Don't fear. You're going to go to Rome. You're going to preach there. So, Father, we pray you'll help us. 